Well, good morning, beloved. It's good to see you uh, on this Lord's Day and to be able to continue to study uh, in First Peter. I hope you were as blessed as I was last week from Pastor Hez uh, in that message from Galatians, but excited to be back with you uh, in First Peter. Now, in the spirit even of the holiday, uh, Dr. King said so many years ago uh, that he highlighted that 11 o'clock was the most segregated hour in the country and said something ought to be done about that. And one of the great dreams and burdens of this church from the moment we were birthed is that we would do something about that. That we would be a people that we often like to say is that sometimes we would love for people to come in and, and kind of observe and look around at the different people in the room, in the church, and kind of have this question, what is it that y'all have in common? And for some of us, the only answer being an empty tomb in the Middle East. That we all understand we are equally sinful and guilty before God. All equally deserving of God's wrath, and yet those who are in Christ, great recipients of great grace and mercy and kindness of Christ. And that sometimes that's all that we have in common. We like to say that and commonly refer to that. Now, I do want to point out on this morning, though, that is a glorious reality. And by God's grace and kindness, he continues uh, to demonstrate that in some of the relationships here. But I do want to say that is, if we're honest, a little bit overstated. Because we have at least one more thing in common. So again, when I say we have the empty tomb in common, I'm assuming there we are sinners and then by grace through faith, saints. So we have that in common, the empty tomb. But we also have this one reality in common, trials and suffering. No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, you can identify with going through. You can identify with life is not always that which you want it to be. There's brokenness and there's hurt and there's pain. There are ups and there are downs. There are difficulties in this world. And if in fact you're a Christian you can say that there are some of those difficulties I go through because, in fact, I am a follower of Christ. And in many ways, we could think about these three categories. One book says that we are all, if you're in Christ, simultaneously sinners, saints, and sufferers. Sinners in that we're not saved by any good thing we've done. Saints that we are saved by grace through faith, but sufferers in that we all experience this brokenness we've all gone through. As plenty of others have said, you're either in a trial, coming out of a trial, or headed to a trial. So we do indeed have an empty tomb in common. And then we have a life full of various kinds of trials. And increasingly in a culture that increasingly wants to push Christian belief and, and uh, convictions to the margin of society, increasingly so we will experience this persecution as a result, or these trials as a result of, again, the fact that we are Christian. Our Christian identity and allegiance to him, to his word, to his people, will increasingly make us strangers and aliens in our society. So therefore, we all ought to have an interest, an interest in a question and answering a question, how do we live with joy in our trials? If we're all going to go through, if we've all gone through, might be going through or will go through, how do we live with joy in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trials? Let me pray and ask for the Lord's help, and that's what we'll seek to answer even from his word this morning. Father, we come to you through Christ, the one who won our victory through suffering. Even asking by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you help us know how to have joy even in great trials? God, we need eternal joy. We need great hope. We need living hope. We need, know, we need to know how to suffer faithfully and well. And so we pray even now by your spirit, would you help us? Even now, would you grow our faith and our joy? And would you do it for your namesake? And we pray in Christ's name, amen. 
I want to look and consider two uh, simple things that we must do if we're going to have joy in our trials. First, we must understand the purpose of our trials. So if you're going to have joy in your trials, you must understand the purpose of your trial. Before we get into that, though, notice what Peter uh, does as he gets into this, these trials is he reminds us of the foundation of our joy, namely the gospel. Gospel doctrine, that it fuels this experiential joy even in suffering. Look again at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So in this, what is he talking about when he says, in this you rejoice? So we're going to get to those trials, but in this you rejoice. What does he mean by in this? It's everything we've covered in the first two sermons in First Peter. The fact that he's writing to elect exiles, chosen strangers, those scattered throughout. We are the beloved of God, but strangers and aliens in this world. We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to the Son and sprinkling with his blood. So even as we talked about two weeks ago, as we looked at the uh, salvation and, and what we were reminded is that we need to remember to look in the rear view behind us and see what he's done. Look at Christ that he lived a perfect life and he died a substitutionary death on Calvary's cross for us. And on the third day he got up and remember that moment when he saved you and you were born again. Like look in the rear view and remember what he's done. But not only that look in front of you, know that he's taking us to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us. So we look in the rear view at what he's done. We look in front of us at what he's going to do and where he's taking us in this promised inheritance. And then we remembered he's guarding us. So look who's guarding you. He's guarding and guiding and keeping you safe unto glory. So we got to remember this gospel, this living hope that we know what's in front of us. If we're in Christ because of what's in the rear view, we know what's in front of us. We have a living hope. And that living hope matters here and now, even in our suffering. So in this we rejoice even though now for a little while we are grieved by various trials. In this you rejoice, in this eschatological hope, this living hope, this gospel doctrine. That's the foundation of our joy that transcends whatever circumstances we're going through. In this you feel extreme happiness or elation and you express it. Knowing that you're right with God and have eternal living hope leads to expressing joy, to rejoicing, to celebrating. This is spiritual joy. This is the joy of our salvation. It's the same word Mary used in the Magnificat when she's singing on God choosing her. It's the same joy we'll read in just a little bit in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. The same joy the Philippian jailer, when he believed in God, celebrated in Acts 16, verse 34. Christian, we never graduate from this joy. We never move on from this rejoicing because if we move on from this living hope, then we will stop rejoicing. If you forget what he's done, you will stop rejoicing. You will not have the joy that is necessary to get through the trials of today. In this we rejoice. In this gospel doctrine, if we're going to make it in a rapidly changing world that increasingly puts Christian belief at the offensive margins of pop culture, we must keep our joy grounded in the glorious truths of the gospel. This is true for seasoned and brilliant theologians, and this is true for brand new baby Christians. This is true for the oldest among us, and this is true for the youngest child among us. Augustine, North African bishop, said the gospel is shallow enough for a child not to drown, yet deep enough for an elephant to swim. All of us need this gospel doctrine 
That's why we need robust gospel reminders every single week when we gather on the Lord's Day through the preached word, through the singing of songs, and through the praying of prayers. That's why we need help in gospel community. In two weeks, we'll start our community groups and we gather together because we need help remembering this great gospel doctrine that is the foundation of our joy. Christian, you ought to view yourself as an agent of gospel joy. Martin Luther said, we, the reformer said, we need to hear the gospel every day because we forget it every day. For me, it's like a slow leak throughout the week. And it just kind of can leak away. So it's like, it's we, we, I'm, not, uh, I'm not being gross or graphic here, but if you've got a toilet and the back of the toilet bowl, so again, I'm not talking about any of the nastiness, the back of the toilet bowl, there are seals in there. And slowly, we've got a leak in ours. There's a seal and just slowly it leaks. And so it'll leak down just a little bit and have to fill back up. And this slow, small, simple leak suddenly has led to an expensive water bill. <laughs> and the gospel can be like that. There can be this slow leak that you don't even realize it. It's an expensive cost to pay when you forget the gospel. It can suddenly pile up and you're like forgetting all the truths of the gospel so that then you get in a suffering moment and you abandon and live as if none of them are true. So we need gospel reminders. We need friends who are again like agents of gospel joy reminding us of this doctrine. So if you don't gather with the saints, if you don't sit under good preaching, if you don't have brothers and sisters reminding you of the gospel that leaked out during the week, it will leak out and you'll forget it. It'll be no less true but you'll forget to live in light of its truths. And that cost can get really expensive really quick. Unbelief can take root, depression, broken marriages, addiction to alcohol or substances or pornography can grab hold of you. Parents, this is why you need to focus on joy in Jesus. Your children need to see you rejoicing in the gospel. They need to see you singing with passion and joy in light of God's gracious work to save you. They need to see you in the word and in prayer far more than they need you to help them be successful in this broken world. They need to be pointed to the eternal joy of Christ in life to come. If your children are going to rejoice forever, they must rejoice in Christ and his gospel. And often it's when we rejoice in the midst of trials that that has the greatest impact. Again, why are we leaky? Why do we need this reminder? Why do we need people to be agents of gospel joy to help us through? Because of the peaks and valleys in life and this, the valleys of various trials, we can be for, uh, tempted to forget not only good gospel doctrine in this you rejoice, but also the good purpose of God in our trials. And that's what Peter gets into first. Peter says these Christians sp spread throughout this region are experiencing various trials, if necessary, for a little while, but they're rejoicing in this living hope. I just want you to pay attention to these two opposite emotions. They said you're rejoicing in this while grieved by various trials. Rejoice while grieved. These are antonyms, opposites, rejoicing and grieving. And even this various trials, the adjective uh, translated various, sometimes can mean many colored. So it's almost like he's saying, no, even though these trials have you beat up black and blue, you're grieving because of that, but rejoicing. How can a person be rejoicing while grieving? How can that be? The, how can we have joy in the midst of grief and trials? Well, by remembering good gospel doctrine. But again, specifically, Peter says, by remembering God's good purposes in our trials. Our trials, our sufferings are instruments in our merciful Redeemer's hands that he uses to do at least three things. Number one, reveal our faith. Number two, refine our faith. And number three, reward our faith to the glory of God. So he uses your trials to reveal your faith, refine your faith, and then reward your faith unto the glory of God. Look at these three. 
Verse 7. First, notice how he uses our trials to reveal our faith. He says, you're going through this, if necessary, for a little while, so that the tested genuineness of your faith. So he's saying, you're going through these trials so that your your faith might be tested to see and reveal its genuineness, its authenticity, its uh, the fact that it's legit and, and that you have that faith that it's there, it's to be revealed. And this shows us and teaches us, we must be reminded, your trials aren't outside of your loving Father's control. Your trials are not outside of the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Your trials do not diminish the power of the blood of Christ, and they are not hindrances to you obeying Christ. In fact, your trials reveal your faith as genuine, as credible, as authentic. They demonstrate the credibility of your faith to you and to those around you. Even King's Cross, consider the impact of Maggie Tinsley's faithfulness in the midst of her husband's passing. Or other widows in our church who've continued to serve the Lord faithfully and walk with him. Read scripture on Sunday mornings. Consider how we see those going through trials, clinging to their faith, and how that faith is revealed in that trial as, as authentic and credible. We see it. We see it like we see that faith as a living faith. It's not just an intellectual thought that you say you believe, but it impacts and changes how you live even when you're going through. Perhaps you've been reading Pastor Garrett Kell's devotions in their suffering as his daughter Eden has now come out of uh, the coma and these seizures and is beginning to improve. But then he finds out his mother has cancer that is very aggressive and will likely lead to her death in the next 12 months while his father has dementia and is getting worse. And now the mother's grieving, the dementia and the father not being able to take care of him, all the while they've been in the hospital for about six weeks with the daughter. And yet you read the devotions. And what you find is credible faith, authentic faith, a clinging to the trust and promises of God. Consider those moments in your own life, Christian, your own personal trials, be they relational or financial or professional or spiritual or physical. Those trials that when they knocked you, knocked your feet out from under you and suddenly you found that Christ caught you and carried you through. You had that, I really do believe he is enough experience. And you really experienced that he really is enough and he's got you. Your faith was tested and revealed as genuine. Now listen, along the way, some might mock us and say, oh, y'all use your faith like a crutch. That's all it is to you. I would respond like KB in an old uh, Christian hip-hop song called Here We Go. Yes, that's how I would respond. Maybe you wouldn't respond that way. That's how I would respond. And I know this when I'm at my lowest. I ask the Lord to give me focus. I know joy comes in that morning, his weight and glory. That's how I fight depressions. They say God is our crutch. Nah, he's much more like my stretcher. So when they want to say he's like your crutch, I'm like, no, no, you're you're not giving him enough credit. I can't even walk without him. I don't need to lean on him. He's carrying me. Trials show and, and reveal to you, you can't even walk. You can't take one more step without him. But he's got you. He is with you. God uses our trials to test our faith and reveal the genuineness of it, which then brings strength and encouragement to live out that faith and keep trusting him. But not only does he use it to reveal our faith, he also uses it, secondly, to refine our faith. So again, he says the tested genuineness of your faith, but he continues in verse 7, more precious than gold, though it perishes, though tested by fire. Now, conceptually, he's drawing on imagery that's used throughout the scriptures Fire melts away the impurities of precious materials. So too, trials and suffering melt away the impurities of our faith. 
God tests our faith. He never tempts us to sin, but he does test our faith. And in testing our faith, it's like a fire purifying what's, uh, what's impure in that faith and, and removing it that what's left might be more pure and more beautiful. He is committed to refining and purifying our faith so that it's strong for us and pleasing to him. That's why James says in James chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But notice, that's not Peter's emphasis here. All of that's true. He's refining our faith. He's removing these impurities so that there is a, a greater purity to it. But that's not what he emphasizes. He uses that imagery, but he doesn't emphasize. What does he emphasize? He said, your faith is more precious than gold, though it is refined by fire. So he's trying to highlight the value of this refined faith, this faith that he is refining. Now, gold was viewed and is still viewed today as one of the most precious materials in the world. But Peter is saying, no, no, I want you to understand as he's refining your faith, you need to understand your faith is more precious than gold. That God values your faith. He loves your faith. That it, it has more uh, value to it than any gold on the planet. I just want you to understand that he's refining and purifying it because it's more valuable than gold. Why? Because gold will eventually perish. Your faith will not. Gold eventually goes away. Your faith will not. It will be realized. You'll see him face to face, but it doesn't go away. Genuine faith is more valuable to God than gold because he's a God who delights in being trusted. As Wayne Grudem says, it's good for you and it's glorifying to him. Like this is a double win. <laughs> so your faith, it's good for you and it glorifies God. So God gets glory from it. You get good from it. He gets more glory. You get more good. You get more good. He gets more glory from you. Like this is how this works. And he wants you to know this is more precious than gold. I just want you to imagine if someone gave you $10 million worth of gold, what lengths would you go to to protect it? How would you invest it? How would you make sure that it was safe? How would you make sure, again, it was protected, that it was growing? Brother or sister, your faith is more precious than $10 million worth of gold. How are you investing it? How are you protecting it? It is more valuable. You might think if I had $10 million, I'd be good. No, no, no. If you have faith, you're good. With or without the $10 million, if you have faith, you're good. It's more valuable. How are you investing it? How are you protecting it? How are you nurturing your faith, making sure it's safe, making sure you do whatever it takes to put it to work and make sure that it's growing? See, trials remind us that this world is not home. They remind us not to live for worldly riches or fame or pleasure because it's all fading. It all goes away. Trials remind us God is refining us because he loves us and he wants us to invest in that which lasts forever, not for that which lasts just for the rest of this earthly life. Our faith is more precious than gold. God is refining it to reveal its, its beauty and its worth. If it takes trials to do that, he'll use trials to do it because he wants what's best for you forever, not just for here and now. However, just to be clear, we aren't masochists. We don't run towards trials and suffering. Like we don't go try to find some suffering to get into. Notice what he said, if necessary, you face various trials. If necessary. And what does he mean by that? He clarifies, he says it again, 1 Peter 3, 17. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. 1 Peter 4, 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So we don't run to trials. 
We're not looking to suffer. We're not trying to trial our, we can't refine our own faith. (laughs) He's sovereign over what trials come and go in our life. He's good over what trials come and go in our life. We don't run to them, but we don't run from them, and we're not surprised when they happen. We expect this is a means which we need and our faith needs to be refined. And we don't know how it all works, how sinful man does what sinful man does and how a glorious and good God does what he does and how all this comes together to lead us through particular... We don't know how it all works. We just know he's good. We know he's in control. We know he's refining us for his glory and our good. And so we don't, we're not surprised when they happen. So again, 1 Peter 4 verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We know in the midst of this, he is revealing our faith and refining our faith's value. So like Job, in the worst story of suffering in the Bible, we, we can say, verse, Job 23.10, he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. He's refining me. My faith is going to be more pure and more beautiful because of his refining work. So therefore, let us pray and ask in the trials you're going through or when you come to them, Lord, what do you mean to teach me in this? Who else do you intend to help through my suffering? The comfort with which I'm comforted. Who else do you want to comfort and help in their suffering through my suffering? Who else do you want to help? How do you intend to meet me in this, Lord? How might I please you in the suffering? How might I believe and help me believe you're using this for my eternal good? You can pray to him, refine my faith, expose what's fake, purify what's real, have your way. Spurgeon says we must expect trial because trial is the element of faith. Faith without trial is like a diamond uncut, the brilliance of which has never been seen. A fish without water or a bird without air is faith without trial. So what we see in this is suffering is a servant to your faith. It's also a servant to God's glory, and that's the third purpose of these various trials that we go through. The third purpose is for the glory of God on that great day. Again, look at the second part of uh, verse 7. So we go through all this. He's refining, or he's revealing he's refining. That may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So God governs your life such that your faith is revealed and refined and so that you get rewards on that great day in such a way that he gets the glory. So again, he's married these two together. We see this throughout this epistle, 1 Peter 2.12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Again, I just read to you 1 Peter 4, 12, and 13. At the very end of verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you, also, uh, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So rejoice now because we know rejoicing is coming then. We know that he's refining. We know that somehow he's going to refine us and purify our faith so that on that great day, our faith is rewarded, but in such a way that reflects his glorious work. So he gets the glory and we get the reward on that day. Sometimes as Christians, I think we're afraid to say we're going to be rewarded because we suddenly think we're, we're afraid we'll start talking about being, no, no, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We don't do anything to save ourselves. But as we live out this faith, he's refining us, and he's going to reward the faithfulness of this faith. How it all works, I don't know. I just know it's coming, and it's what the text says. It's going to be rewarded on that great day. So we need not be afraid of reward. No, I want all the rewards I can get to the glory of Christ, not to my own glory. 
Knowing it's to the glory of Christ, knowing he's the one who's guiding and keeping me by his spirit according to the will of the Father, knowing he's doing all that gets him the great glory. So the Apostle Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, I worked harder than anybody, yet not I, but Christ who's in me. It's the grace of Christ in me. So again, it's all grace. But he does it in such a way that on that great day, the day of visitation, the day of judgment, he will reward our faith that he has refined and revealed. So trials are for the good of your faith and the glory of God. Trials are for your eternal rewards and God's eternal glory. And this is important because we're tempted to want rewards now. But these are rewards that go away. Again, even gold perishes. But that's our temptation to want the reward here and now. But God is committed to our eternal rewards. Rewards to be enjoyed forever. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes, God puts us through a trial in order to pry our fingers off that which isn't most valuable so that we'll wrap our fingers around that which is. He's married our revealed and refined faith to his eternal glory. And this is not new, Isaiah 48. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Again, he's married his glory with the refined faith of his people in such a way that it all works out where he gets the glory and we get the good. Christ's glory displayed in the mirror of our faith on that great day. Oh, beloved, our Lord's refining work is a sweet mercy to us in this life and in the life to come. Our revealed and refined faith will be rewarded to the Lord's great glory. So we might face the sneering of the skeptic in this life, but I promise you, better yet, God promises you, the reward will be worth the suffering in the end. So how do we live with joy in our trials? We need agents of gospel joy to help us in the journey in order to help us remember God's good purposes in our trials. He's revealing and refining our faith unto his glory and for our eternal reward. Secondly and finally, how do we have joy in our trials? We observe evidences of gospel joy in our trials. So how do we have it? Well, we got to observe that we have it. So I understand it's a little confusing, but I want to show you it's in the text. So how do we have this joy? Well, by looking for evidence that the Spirit is at work and God's grace is at work such that we do have the joy and we need to access and live out of that joy. So now that we've been reminded that we need gospel joy, we need those reminders we know God's always using our trials for his good or for his glory and our good. Peter highlights evidences that his readers do in fact have that joy. Sometimes in order to rejoice in your trials, you need to be reminded that you really do have a joy that is already present. You really do have relationship with Christ and therefore you have a joy that the rest of the world who does not know Christ is not able to have. You need to be reminded of evidences of grace that are in you. It's easy, especially in trials and suffering, to get so in your head that you're blind to God's good work in and around you. Especially those of you who pride yourself on being a realist. Let me come at you just for a minute, but I'll come gently. You realists in the room. Sometimes you need reminders that you're a supernaturalist, not a realist. That, or else these trials might make you live like an atheist. You might think, no, no, I'm a realist. Yeah, but life is garbage right now. So if you're going to be real about it, that's all you're going to say. Life is garbage right now. 
But if you're a supernaturalist who knows my good God is using this for my good and to his glory, now you're a supernaturalist who understands I can interpret these real circumstances. I can be really honest about them, but I do so with joy, with rejoicing. Now, again, and I don't even say that to be offensive to any atheistic friends who might be here today. If you're an atheist and you're here today, super happy that you're here. You're welcome. You are safe here. I'm saying something that I would assume if an atheist is here, they would say, amen. It makes logical sense for an atheist to be pessimistic about that which happens beyond the grave. And therefore, to be generally pessimistic in in this life if it's full of great trials. Because the atheist assumes this life is the best it will ever get. So I'm, I'm assuming I'm saying something that the atheist would say, amen. I'm not offended at all by that. That's exactly what I believe. But to the Christians, this is not the case. Whatever suffering happens in this life is the worst you'll ever experience. The best always lies ahead for the believer. And even if you've forgotten this moment because your trials seem too big and your faith in God seems too small, the Holy Spirit dwelling within you hasn't forgotten. The Savior that promised to be with you to the ends of the earth, he hasn't forgotten. The Father who promises to give good gifts to his children, he hasn't forgotten. In fact, there are three evidences of gospel joy in you that his Spirit I trust by his spirit in his word will remind you right now. Look at this joy you have that perhaps you've forgotten about. Three evidences of his grace and gospel joy, even in the midst of the storm. Evidence number one, you love him. Verse eight, though you've not seen him, you love him. Now this is powerful because Christ, or Peter had spent three years with the Lord Jesus, following him in the flesh, Seeing his teaching, hearing his teaching, watching him heal, watching him cast out demons. He spent time with him. He saw him go to the cross and die in the place of sinners. He saw him be beaten and mocked and made fun of. He saw him die and be buried in the grave. He saw him on the third day raised from the grave. He interacted with him, was restored even though he had denied and abandoned him. He touched the holes in his hands and feet. Peter saw him and Peter loved him. But Peter's saying to these Christians scattered throughout this dispersion, he's saying, no, 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 even though you haven't seen him, You love him. Christian, you love him. I didn't ask you a question. If you have the spirit of Christ dwelling in you, you love him. You need to be reminded, you love Jesus. (laughs) And sometimes it takes these trials to remind you that you love him. This audience hadn't seen Christ with their natural eyes, nor have you or I. We've never had a face-to-face conversation with the Messiah, one in which we could see him with the eyes in our face. But do you remember last week, when I, or a couple weeks ago, when I challenged you, look in the review, and remember if you can remember when you were converted, what that felt like, what it, what it felt like to go from death to life and how you changed? Even in that moment, Brianna Pruitt turned around and looked at Katie Irvin. Bree led Katie to faith when they were students at UNC Charlotte. Katie sat in this room listening to that, thinking about that with tears streaming down her face. Salvation tears have a way of sneaking up on you like that. You love him. And when you think about the fact that he saved you, not because you did anything, just because he's good and he loves like you remember, oh, that's right, I love him. Though I haven't seen him, I love him, I believe. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. If you're a Christian, you love him. You love him. You really love him. Christian, you have affection for King Jesus. 
You love him, you really do. Even in your trials, you love him. Don't be afraid to admit it. Don't be afraid to look at it. Don't be afraid of the vulnerability of loving him. You love Jesus. I feel like Tomater in the movie Cars. Y'all remember whenever uh, he's hanging out, he's making fun of uh, the main character because he's in love with Sally. You love her, you love her, you love her. I'm like, no, you love him, you love him, you love him. You really do. You really do. And trials and suffering and unbelief can make you feel like you don't. But if you're in Christ, you really do love him. And do you understand that's a supernatural evidence of grace at work in you that is meant to encourage you even and especially while you suffer trials. You love him because he first loved you. 1 John 4, 19. You would not love him if he didn't first love you. You do love him because he did first love you. Unashamed, extravagant affection for the Son of God, Sam Storm says. You love him. Now, it's fun to ask the question, what if I don't feel this? Well, there's a few possible answers to that. Perhaps you're not nurturing it. Again, if your faith is more precious than gold, my question would be, are you protecting and nurturing your faith as if it was more precious than gold? Are you nurturing your faith not to earn anything from God, but are nurturing your faith with God's word? Psalm 19.7, listen to this language. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Are you nurturing your faith with the word? What about prayer and fasting? Have you forgotten you love him because you're not talking to him? Have you forgotten you love him because you're not setting things aside to say, no, no, I love you more than sugar or social media or food. Like, no, no, you're better than this for me. Are you spending time? Are you nurturing that faith? What about in community and corporate worship? Do you come to church on Sundays anticipating to hear from God? Like, are you nurturing that faith? No, God, speak to me. I anticipate by your spirit, through your word, you're going to speak. Do you sing? Do you tell your soul you will believe these truths by singing out even when you don't feel them? Community. Listen, I'll just encourage you as community groups start in a couple of weeks, and in general, just a practice of me and my wife. So regularly, we'll have people over to our home. We'll meet somebody visiting the church, new members of the church, whatever it is. We'll have a conversation. Hey, why don't y'all come over? And usually the conversation ends up inevitably coming up to, well, how did y'all meet? I hate that question because we met when I was a high school football coach and she was a cheerleader. So that sounds super sketch. (laughs) Now, we didn't date then. The question was, how did you meet? Not when did you date? We didn't date then. So I always have to give these disclaimers like I did right then. Now, that's how we met. That's not when we dated. That's how we met. I know it's on the news all the time and it's wicked. That's not me. That's, I was not guilty of that. All right. Having said that, then we tell the story. We have a good laugh. And suddenly we ask them, how did y'all meet? If it's a married couple or if a dating couple. And it begins to build intimacy and community. I would say do that. But also ask, like, how did you meet the Lord? Tell me when y'all met. Like, share those stories. Be stoked in your faith. Be an agent of gospel joy by having these conversations about when you met and be refreshed and encouraged. The Lord saves people like me and you. Be encouraged by that. Evidence number two, that not only do you love him, you believe in him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. So you, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Trust in Jesus is evidence you're in loving relationship with Jesus. You have not seen him, but you love him. You do not now see him, but you believe in him. And remember what our Lord said himself in John 20, 29. Jesus said to him, his disciples, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now this word believe, this verb is translated, just means to trust or rest one's confidence in or depend upon. Christian, you believe in Jesus. You've surrendered to him. You've yielded to him. You've turned to him again and again and again, not only for salvation, but for help and strength and hope. And every single time he's kept you and can't continue on this journey of faith. He's come through over and over and over. He's never let you go. You called, he answered. That's why you trust him. Even when you struggle with doubts and insecurity and felt tempted to be trendy and deconstruct, he kept you believing. Even when you're going through, you trust him. What if you're struggling even now with unbelief? One, I would just say, pay attention to your self-talk. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that sometimes our greatest uh, troubles in life is because we spend too much time listening to ourselves rather than talking to ourselves. We listen to our sinful flesh that's informed by the lies of the world and Satan and the demonic realm rather than speaking truth to our feelings. We live in a culture that says your feelings are God. But them joints are lying to you regularly. So don't spend all your time listening to them. You talk to them. Read the Psalms. The psalmist is regularly saying, while you downcast, oh, my soul, hope in God. Stop believing those lies. Fight the good fight of the faith. You believe in him. So make sure your self-talk is not telling you not to believe. You talk back to that self-talk. You say, I don't care how I feel right now. My feelings matter. But I'm going to speak truth to them, and they will submit to truth. The truth of God will not submit to my feelings. My feelings will submit to the truth of God. You speak back to those feelings. And you remember the good news that weak faith and strong faith are both dependent on the object of our faith. And Jesus will keep you whether your faith is weak or strong. Your faith might wax and wane. His strength doesn't. (laughs) He's got you. Your faith doesn't control his strength. He's got you, and you believe. And and when you struggle with unbelief, you'll be helped to remember that story of the father with a demon-possessed kid. It's like, man, maybe Jesus can heal my son. What do I do when I'm struggling with my faith? Listen to what he does. They brought the boy to him, that is Jesus. When the spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, how long has it been happening to him? He said, from childhood. It is often cast him into fire and to water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father, father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him, and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him, terribly it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. What do we learn to do with weak faith? I believe. Help my unbelief. But your faith is not in the strength of your faith. It's in the strength of the Savior. And so I'm here mainly to remind you by the power of the Spirit, Christian, You believe. You really love him, and you really believe him. And when you get in those trials and you think, where else am I going to go? And you look to Christ, you reveal, you believe he's got you. Now, what if you don't feel affection for Jesus, nor believe in him? 
Well, perhaps you're not a Christian. If there's no love for him, there's no belief in him, you may not be a believer. What should you do then? Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. He suffered and died for you. So he's not saying, listen, I'll be with you in suffering from a distance. He's like, no, no, no. I entered the flesh. I suffered and died climactically. I'm the only one to suffer and die perfectly. The only one who would go to the cross for sins I didn't commit, but it's sins you committed, and die and take the wrath of God for your sins, though he had none of his own, be buried, and on the third day resurrect to demonstrate I can save sinners, even those who've suffered. Non-Christian friend, look to Christ and be saved even today. Let us walk with you through your trials and tribulations. You walk with us. Let's walk together. You haven't seen him, but you love him. You don't see him now, but you believe in him. Thirdly and lastly, the third evidence, you rejoice with inexpressible joy. uh, Continued on verse 8, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible or unutterable and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. This third evidence brings us full circle. Remember where we began in verse 6. In this living hope you rejoice, though now for a little while you suffered. We know what's in front of us. We know who's guiding and guarding us. We know where he's taking us. So therefore we can rejoice, though now we're beat up black and blue a little bit from our suffering. Because we understand our suffering is our servant. Therefore we rejoice, we feel glad, and we express it with extreme happiness, with extreme elation. We have unutterable joy filled with glory. This is the joy of salvation. And as Jonathan would love for me to say, the world didn't give it to us and the world can't take it away. This is a joy that will stay with us no matter what we go through. This circumstantially transcendent joy, that joy that draws others to us even in our suffering, a joy that violates the boundaries of vocabulary. We have that joy and it's a foretaste of glory. That's why singing with the saints is so powerful. When we sing together, sometimes expressing emotions that just simple words can't express. We get this foretaste of heaven coming into the here and now. Knowing, no, 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 even this unexpressible joy, this unutterable joy is evidence that I'm going. You love him, you believe in him, and you have a joy that transcends your ability to talk about it because you are in Christ. Rudum captures this by saying, even in that, we have a joy that's been infused with heavenly glory and that still possesses the radiance of that glory. It is thus joy that results from being in the presence of God himself and joy that even now partakes of the character of heaven. It's the joy of heaven before heaven, experienced now in fellowship with the unseen Christ. So in conclusion, how do we live with joy in our trials? Well, the title of this sermon is Gospel Joy in Our Temporary Trials. That answers the question. How do we live with joy in our trials? We live with gospel joy in our temporary trials. We know they come to an end, and we know our God is using it for his purposes. I remember and conclude with this. There was a moment uh, a little over 10 years ago that I was standing in a worship service. We were in seminary. We had two little kids. Uh, They were very young. I was working two part-time jobs, and I was a full-time seminary student, and bills were tight, and then I lost basically one of those jobs. And I remember being at church that Sunday, singing in worship with tears streaming down my face. God, I have no idea how we're going to get through this. I don't know where the next dollar is going to come from, and I got nothing in savings. I got hungry babies and a hungry wife. I think you want me to be a pastor. I don't, like, I don't know what to do, but I trust you. So I cried out to him, and he heard me, and that's why I trust him. And that's what we do as Christians. We have gospel joy 
in temporary trials, knowing he's going to work it out for his glory and our good. Let's close in prayer. Father.